Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great pleasure to welcome Jim Dieter. Jim is Professor of Business Administration at the University of Virginia's Darden Graduate School of Business. And Jim is one of the world's leading experts in managing upwards. And Jim, I've asked you on the show because there's so many people listen to the show who are corporate entrepreneurs and innovators who fail to get their ideas listened to, who end up leaving organizations when they have so much to offer, always coming up with ideas but not knowing that there's a framework for which to get your ideas heard. And today, I'd love if we talked about, firstly, that and the framework that you, through your research, have identified. And secondly, how leaders can create an environment for which people like this can thrive. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Before we get there, Jim, I'd love if we talked about both sides of that. And, And I discovered your work through two fantastic articles that you've written in the Harvard Business Review. But before we talk that, it'd be great to hear about you first and a little bit about your background. Sure. So I'm a professor, as you said, at, uh, in the business school, and uh, I really consider myself at heart somebody who's much more a social scientist who just wants to be in a business school because I think we can have the greatest impact on the world. Um, if we sort of help to educate and change the minds and the effectiveness of people who, you know, have so much power to either, you know, do good for the world or ultimately to do harm. And so I've, I've tried to use those principles, um, to help people be more effective, not just in creating wealth, uh, through innovation. And I'm driven by the simple reality that most adults spend more time Uh, awake, working than doing any other activity during their adulthood. And uh, it seems to be such a darn shame uh, that people feel they have to leave so much of themselves, their their best ideas, uh, their heart, their soul at home every day. And so I'm I'm driven by not just sort of helping organizations be more effective financially, but also uh, helping individuals enjoy those experiences a lot more. That's a a great mission because that must make your own work so rewarding. Yeah, it, it really does. You know, um, to have people come back to you and say, you know, either that they have figured out how to be fundamentally more effective in the organization they're currently in, uh, or to realize that they only have one life and therefore have had to make a change. And, and even if in some small way, I've been part of stimulating them to sort of have the courage and the competence to make that change. It's, it's a pretty rewarding job. And I, you know, it's, it's really a privilege to have that role. It sure is. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's a reason I do this show as well. And, and I, you know, I'm so privileged to have people like you on the show because there's people out there who just clock out when they go into the work. It's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest when you go and get lobotomized to go into work and you just, you just sign out mentally and just go, okay, well, I'll just get through the day and then I'll actually live my life outside. And, and, and you're right. It's just such a shame. Yeah. And, and you, you realize uh, when you study the things I do, how often that's the result of unintentional decisions and behaviors. Um, you know, I've interviewed and worked with people and organizations um, that 
consciously aspire to and in fact do hire you know the smartest best educated people in the world and then those same people within a year or two of working there say uh we've all been made to feel like idiots who have nothing worthwhile to contribute and who will only embarrass ourselves and harm our careers if we speak up and i you know i think that's one of a couple great ironies one is how People can come into organizations being so talented and smart and motivated and so very quickly um, feel stupid and undervalued, unappreciated and um, not very motivated at all. And, you know, and in the U.S., another great irony, which which really drives me is the the reality that the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees free speech. But that right only exists out on the street. You know, I I can say whatever I want, for example, about, you know, President Trump or before him, President Obama, and, and politically nothing can happen to me. Uh, but those same basic rights don't extend to most workplaces at all in the U.S. Um, if, you, if you criticize even a direct boss in most U.S. workplaces, those can be grounds for dismissal. And so uh, it's it's really perhaps the great irony of the American workplace that um, there really is no such thing as protected free speech. It's something those with less power have to be incredibly careful and competent about if they want to, you know, keep their jobs to be successful. And it's uh, it's not the natural state of affairs if you're a leader to create those conditions because everybody knows um, it it the baseline is not the protection of those rights. Yeah, and it's it's like they're rewarded to keep everybody in check. It's it's such a, an archaic system where everybody claims, oh yeah, I'm looking for different thinkers. I want to, and I'm doing air quotes here, think outside the box, and then they bring in those outside the box thinkers, and they're rejected like a bad organ transplant from their corporation. And you've you've identified that that for for organisations to prosper. Unless middle managers have the confidence to identify and champion change, there is going to be no change in this sea of disruption that's there. And I'd love to, Jim, tell our audience a little bit about this because I'm sure there's people out there crying to hear this. You know, how do I do this? Because I'm just, I'm, I'm dying here with my ideas within the organization. And then they come become entrepreneurs or go somewhere else and start their own business. And then the company kind of goes, why, why did you leave us? And there's two sides of the coin here, as, as I said. But it'd be great to hear how a middle manager or somebody down the chain can get buy-in for their ideas. Sure. I think ultimately what we're talking about, and and in uh, one of the articles you re- you referenced, we my colleague Sue Ashford, Sue Ashford and I talk about issue selling, um, which is sort of you know a framework for taking your idea and convincing those above you um, to do something with it. You know, others have called this uh, this process something different. Um, some people talk about tempered radicalism. You know, the idea that we need people to be radical and really, you know, offer fundamentally new and different ideas, but we need them to be tempered. Uh, that is to say, and do things in ways that they can be heard rather than just rejected. Um, I also, more recently, have been thinking about this as as competent courage. I think. For too long, we've talked about courage in the workplace, and usually it evokes notions of a whistleblower. But we know that the fate of most whistleblowers is to actually be expelled from the organization. And so I think we have to 
talk about frameworks for competent courage. That is, how does somebody who has important ideas or knowledge, uh, how, how do they get that heard? And, and so fundamentally, whatever you call this, these frameworks are really about, I think, making at some level the basic recognition that when you have an idea, if you're middle management or a professional, um, an entrepreneur, by definition, you are excited about the idea. By definition, you believe it will work. You want further resources and investment, but you don't have the power. And I think what that means is we have to recognize that successfully convincing others to accept our innovations and our ideas is actually not about using the language, the framing, um, doing it in the context or the venue that we prefer, but in a way that the targets who have to support us prefer. And so at some level, a lot of what we can talk about more specifically is really just about perspective taking. And it's really a, it's a profound perspective taking and it's realizing that I am not just verbalizing the story I have already internally told myself and find compelling. It's about telling the story in a way that the targets will find most compelling. And for most of us, that's a pretty big shift in thinking. So I think it's realizing that there's this fundamental shift that we have to make between what's convincing to us personally, the language we like, the the arguments we find compelling to the language of the target. Um, what is it they find most compelling? Uh, what is it that excites them emotionally? And I think unless we learn to, to think about and present things in ways that the target, the people with the most power find compelling, we're not likely to be successful. And often that can be really difficult for us because we have a different level of expertise. We may have a different uh, functional specialization. And so getting out of our head and taking that perspective is really critical to selling successfully. Yeah, it makes total sense, Jim. When when you think of, you can't walk a mile in their shoes until you're actually in their shoes half the time. And, you know, it reminds me of when I was playing professional sport or playing professional rugby. When I coached, I had a totally different perspective of myself as a player and also where my failings were as a player and, you know, where I could have made life easier for the coach because you can only see through your own lenses at the time. And the the advantage of, of that empathy and that kind of understanding of what they're going through. And if you understand, you know, your, your boss or the CEO of the company, their perspective regards the board and the, you know, the board actions and the pressure they're under and also how they're incentivized, you'd, you'd actually communicate a totally different. Yeah. And I think that, that part of it is realizing that, um, you need to understand them more than they need to understand or explain their position to you. You know, you, your one idea is crucial to you. You know, if you're that player on that team, your view of, of how the team should play or what your role should be is paramount to you. But they've got, you know, 10 other players that they're thinking about. They're worrying about other stakeholders. Um, and the same is true, you know, in all managerial contexts, you, you're just one of many possible uh, people, ideas, stakeholders they have accountability to. And and they they really don't have any time or need to explain that to you. 
but you have to understand them if you want to succeed. Selling a new idea then, when most time for CEOs is, is corporate firefighting or dealing with the, the business as it is today or yesterday, trying to get it up to speed with the day. And you're, as an entrepreneur and innovator within a corporation, going, you know what, we need to look at this for the future. And that's like, that's really rejected because it's like, I have to focus on keeping the ship sailing, let alone point it in a new direction. That's right. And I think so, you know, if you think about some of the specific tactics, that's why we talk about things like connecting your issue to issues currently receiving attention or connecting your issue to current strategic priorities. So often there are ways if we spend just a little bit of time thinking about it, that we can take our project, you know, our idea, which feels more future oriented, and we can convey it in a way that says, you know, hey, boss, I understand right now your strategic priority is today's problem X uh, or its growth, you know, in area Y. And let me tell you why this idea is fundamentally actually connected to this current strategic priority or current growth area. And it's ultimately incumbent on the issue seller, right, the potential innovator, to make that connection. Because, again, the the manager who, you know, as we well know, has, you know, a million things going on, has at most, you know, three to ten minutes for any issue. They don't really have any incentive to see the connection. It's you that has to make that connection. Yeah, and this this is where most of us fail, isn't it? Where, where, and I see it a lot in digital, the world of digital, where you might have a chief digital officer or a CTO, a chief technology officer. They're advocating a new system being brought in. And then that's kind of like, well, that's going to cost us $300,000 or whatever it is. And the CEO is kind of going, well, that's a cost. That's an outgoing. And, and do, is what we have not enough? And you talk about this in, in, in your articles about how to frame that to get it over the line. Yeah, and I think that uh, one aspect of issue selling framing is thinking about uh, whether you present, you know, things, for example, uh, as a as a as an investment versus a cost. It's also about whether you present something uh, as an opportunity or as a threat. You know, if you listen, all you have to do is listen carefully um, to what your boss or bosses. Uh, how they describe sort of the world they operate in. And some people will more naturally describe and therefore gravitate to pitches that are tailored as opportunities. They like sort of upside ideas. Um, others, on the other hand, really respond better to um, risks. What's the downside? Um, what's going to be the cost associated with inaction? So even thinking about, you know, does my target tend to respond better to upside opportunity framing or downside sort of costs or risk uh, mitigation framing? E even that kind of framing can make quite a big difference in whether you connect or not with the target. Yeah. And, and you talk also about this idea of a burning platform of some sort to kind of create urgency. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes the issue with urgency is around um, timing, you know. So often, as as you said, uh, people who are more uh, entrepreneurial, are, really have innovative, creative minds, are in a sense sort of, you know, too far out ahead of where decision makers are. And so, you know, part of the sort of creating a burning platform might be uh, 
again, to talk about connecting to different current strategic issues. But sometimes it's also about asking yourself whether, you know, the timing is quite right. You know, you can simply be too far out advance uh, and you're just not going to get traction. Um, and, you know, one of the the failings I often see conversely, and I hear a lot of managers who, who would like to be open to innovative ideas and, and problems being brought up, is they say people wait, you know, they wait too long. So uh, a decision is announced and now it's time to implement and, and people now suddenly want to debate and talk about other alternatives. And so I think, you know, we have to be skillful as issue sellers in thinking about the timing. Um, if we're too far out in advance, we're not going to get traction. If we're if we've missed the boat, we're not going to get traction. And so, you know, how do you really think about sort of right timing? of an issue. And sometimes the right timing, if you are out in advance, is to connect to something else re- receiving a lot of current attention. That kind of raises from experience as well, where the issue seller wants credit for the idea. So they'll sell it at a board meeting or they'll sell it you know, at a, at a forum that's not necessarily the right forum. And then people will reject it because in a way, you have to let go of the credit for the idea to get it over the line and actually make your boss or your superior or several people, the heroes and step away from money kind of praise. Yeah, you, you do. It's, it's, it's a great point. In fact, one of the, one of the things we often talk about is uh, the need when you're selling, even though it sounds a little counterintuitive to actually do a lot of listening and a lot of asking. And, you know, by that, I mean to say that you, you may begin with, the pitch in which you present an idea and, you know, the, the underlying data you're, you're drawing from to sort of make a, a reasoning case and then to, uh, to put forward a conclusion. But I think really successful issue sellers know that having done that, it's really important to stop and say, but hey, boss, let me ask what you're thinking. What's important to you? What data or, or, uh, problems are you looking at? What what are you thinking about this idea? And often um, when you do that, you you knock down the idea that there's this adversarial I'm selling and you're buying and you shift it into a we are both collectively trying to come up with something better for the organization. And often when we talk about this concept, people will say, you know, to your point, they'll say, well, what if the boss's idea is actually better or what if what if the direction we end up going is ultimately more toward his or her side than mine and i say well isn't that great because yeah. if ultimately your goal is to do best by the organization then who really cares whether it's more on your side or or more on the boss's side you call this out very clearly it's not about currying favor, but it's all almost convincing different parts of the corporate body. So everywhere the decision maker asks, you've actually covered that ground or as much as you can, or at least, and, and you say this, I think this is a great one, not only get the people who may be on your side, on your side, but also the people who aren't on your side, move them out of the way. Yeah, well, think about it. You know, what good does it do to get you 
sort of the approval to go ahead, you know, the yes, uh, the initial resources um, from from above you. If the next, you know, months or years are going to be followed by everybody else in the organization doing everything they can to sabotage your idea for moving forward. And so, you know, a key part of, of both preparing to take an idea forward isn't just to get sort of allies on board to sell it with you, but it's also so that once you get that support, you actually have people to help you move forward and carry out the implementation. Because approval for an idea without the ability to implement it isn't worth much of anything. Yeah. yeah that, that saying implementation without ideas is better than ideas without implementation comes to mind. And that kind of something you said there reminds me of, you know, getting get in buying across an organization where you may need a different department to help you get it over the line. Maybe somebody has a budget in a different department that can help you. You have to then give them some of the praise for that don't you you have to find out what their triggers are what their incentives are to get it over the line because you're selling all the time you do i mean a lot of that's really thinking about you know win 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 type framing you know what what's in it for these various different departments or functions in the organization uh and i think you know when you talk about are you willing to let go of the idea or the need to sort of win or have credit up front. I also think that's true on the back end. Um, some of the people, as I've been studying, you know, what I would call competent courage that I have seen be most skillful at that process of really creating internal change rather than, you know, just sort of blowing up themselves on the way out of the organization, uh, really understand that on the back end of any sort of issue selling or, or change process involves taking steps like sharing credit and offering things to others. You know, so letting other people sort of be the person up front, uh, getting the credit, uh, making the speeches, accepting the awards. Um, and it's also the, the flip side process of, of making sure you sort of go around to people whose egos were potentially bruised um, or, or who are feeling a little bit like they were the losers on some new resource allocation and, and working on repairing and rebuilding uh, any trust or or egos involved, you know, because ultimately most organizational contexts are, you know, they're they're multi-game matches, and you might think you won, you know, the the first the first game or you know the battle, but you can easily be setting yourself up to lose the war or the match if you're not skillful about that. Yeah, I love that. And also there you have a split as well where I was just thinking when you're saying that if you're the person always coming up with ideas or kind of going, the ship is headed towards an iceberg, you can quickly become a kind of a chicken little in the organization or a Nostradamus always spelling out doom and people will then label you as that. And then it's very, very difficult to sell your ideas. Yeah, there is. You know, so one of the things I advise people is to, you know, to assess their key values and goals. And to really, you know, think about whether this particular battle likely aids or hinders winning sort of the bigger war, because there's no question, you know, some of us have an inclination to sort of stand up about and speak up about everything or to push every possible change in idea. And, uh, you know, you can easily win some battles, but lose the war because over time, 
uh, people just sort of say, yeah, that's that's his or her standard, you know, take on everything. It's never good enough. We should always be doing something different. And I I think you're right. You know, people get labeled. And, and I would also say, you know, it's common in organizations to recommend processes like, you know, nominate a devil's advocate. But I'm I'm cautious about those recommendations, too, because. I think that the devil's advocate can also become just an institutionalized form of, you know, the chicken little or the boy who cries wolf all the time. So, you know, we we know we have to give lip service to the devil's advocate, but none of us take the devil's advocate seriously after a while. Right. We we just pretend to listen while the alternative point of view or criticism is is levied and then we move on anyway. That kind of reminds me then of you talk about tempering emotions as well on both sides. So understanding the issue buyer and then as a seller, tempering your emotions and knowing when to play the passion card and when not to. Yeah, I think that's right. And and the truth of it, I think, is that, you know, we we are all better or worse at sort of controlling our own emotions you know, and or others emotions. So some of us are, you know, extremely passionate or we will use you know, righteous anger, indignation to push strongly forward and not realize the negative effect that emotionality is having on somebody else. Others of us, of course, who hate the idea of of public speaking or conflicts are so driven by our own fears that we're not very effective. Uh, You know, no matter how great the substance of your idea is, if you're shaken in your boots and it's obvious and you're sweating profusely, you're not very compelling. But of course, the, the flip side is also true. You know, if you don't have the emotional intelligence to realize um, that despite the fact, for example, that the target of your pitch is saying the right things, you know, and and, and feigning interest in what you're saying, um, their, their facial expressions, um, their body language is telling you they hate the idea. Um, you could make huge mistakes in how much uh, time you invest, you know, taking the next steps with your idea. Like one of the things I often work on with people is uh, a simple little visual exercise where I I show a reaction to an issue cell of a target, and I ask people, "Does he like your idea or not?" And most of the time, at least half the audience is completely wrong. They think he likes the idea because what they don't notice is that this target has done what we all have learned to do, which is you have that instantaneous real reaction, which is it's disgust, it's stupid, I hate the idea. But then we put on the face of the friendly boss, which says, oh, yeah, I'm listening. I'm curious. Tell me more. And if you're not skillful enough to realize that the first reaction was the real reaction, you can waste a lot of time on an idea that the boss doesn't like at all. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, this, when you kind of listen to this as a whole, and you, you talk about issue selling, it is sales. I mean, the, the the best salespeople in the world are great listeners, and they listen to what's said, but also what's not said. They listen to body language. They listen to intonation. And I remember reading once a body language book. It said, when somebody goes, that's really interesting, it actually means this is not interesting to me at all. It's actually one of the biggest cover-ups there is. And so many people just don't look at it holistically to get it over the line. A story in that regard. Uh, I had a student a few years ago um, in a class on emotional intelligence. And 
I was talking about the benefit of of using some uh, facial recognition software to, you know, to really improve one's skills in recognizing, you know, these automatic musculature movements that indicated that someone was either, you know, uh, interested or, or bored or disgusted or surprised or happy. And uh, a few months later, he wrote me back and said, you know, I just wanted to tell you that this emotion reading thing has changed my career. And he was a VP of sales. And he said, to give you an example, last week I went on a sales call with one of my sales personnel and we we did a 30-minute pitch to get a big new chunk of business. And afterward, we came out and he said, my sales rep said to me, um, I thought that went great. We're going to get the contract. And he said, I looked at him and said, it went terribly. We have no chance. And sure enough, the meeting had gone very poorly. And it was only because he had really focused on this emotion management training that he had learned to pick up all these subtle cues that told him what the target really was thinking and feeling. Yeah. And and when you think of the, as you said, the wasted effort you can have when you don't know those cues or don't look for triggers. And and then, you know, what that would lead to as a salesperson, you're going on to reporting and you're kind of going, this is advanced in my pipeline when the reality is quite the opposite. Yeah. and, And if you think about it, you know, for evolutionary reasons, the human brain is is certainly geared toward overestimating risk. Right? It's 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 always been more important to our survival that we think we see a bear and run when the bear isn't there than to not think there's a bear there and be dead. And so. If you think in the context even of modern environments, we are geared to see a boss not liking our idea, even when he or she might be quite neutral or okay with the idea. And so think about all the waste involved and all the lack of of innovation and change that occurs because people go back to their offices assuming that the targets of their initial cells didn't like what they said or wasn't interested and therefore they they give up on their idea too soon they they throw away um the thing they're most passionate about and all that really happened is they misread they overestimated the boss's negative reaction to an event we might talk about the flip side of the coin now jim because there's a great framework and i'm going to link to the articles and you know in the, in the future i hope we see a book because it's so much merits all the research you've done etc but I'd love, love if we talk now, Jim, about the flip side of the coin, which is from the leader's perspective, from a leader in an organization, a CEO, an MD, a business unit, how to create that environment where people feel psychologically safe to 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 bring up ideas, to come forth with ideas, to change, et cetera. And, and that all in an environment of not create, creating mayhem, where it's like everybody's throwing ideas left, right and center. It's actually tempered ideas. Sure. You know, the the obvious things which I can state and, and then we can move past quickly are, you know, are obviously, um, do you display an openness to ideas? Um, when people give you ideas, do you do anything about it? Do you respond productively? Do you ever actually change anything? Um, and one thing we know is that 
or simply having an open door policy, you know, saying you're open to idea to ideas and people should come to you. It, it's not nearly enough. Um, you have to actually sort of get out of your office. You have to go solicit those ideas. And a big part of the reason that's important is that people are really attentive to small power cues. So when you make them come to your office, that's your turf. Uh, that's where you're most comfortable. It's probably where you have the big comfortable chair and they have to sit on the, you know, the cheap, uncomfortable chair. You're sitting behind your fancy desk. Uh, often bosses are wearing more expensive clothes and have all these other symbols of their higher status and power. And so the idea that people are going to feel really safe telling you the truth on your turf just doesn't make any sense. And so I think we have to be willing to go back to some of the old school management by walking around because there you get onto other people's turf where they're comfortable. And you're much more likely when you go ask them on their turf to, to hear the truth. I think, you know, we also have to realize that if humans are really sort of wired to notice and worry about challenging people in power, then it's not just enough to say, oh, I'm generally an open, nice boss. Um, you have to watch for all these very subtle cues that remind people that you're the boss. Uh, and I'll give you a give you a simple example. A few years ago in my doctor's office, uh, there was a sign on all the examining room offices um, walls that said, speak up. You know, if you have a concern, an issue, speak up, tell the doctor. And so I got to wondering, you know, whether even the smallest subtle cues might affect whether people actually spoke up to their doctor. And so I borrowed the doctor's examining office and uh, I had a, a colleague of mine and a doctoral student of mine um, act, uh, you know, play the role um, by, you know, wearing the garb of a patient and a doctor with a lab coat. And we simply took three different sets of pictures, one where the doctor and the patient sat exactly at eye level with each other. Another one where the patient sat on the examining table and was looking down on the doctor who was sitting on a chair. And then a third one where the doctor's chair was just raised up a little bit so that the doctor was looking down about six inches at the patient in a lower chair. And we shared one of those three pictures with different sets of people and told them, imagine you are the patient in this scenario. And you have a problem you've come to talk to the doctor about and you feel he's just kind of blown you off and been dismissive and is ready to end the interview or sorry, the examination. How comfortable would you be speaking up, telling the doctor that you really believe there's something else wrong? And what we found in a major way is that the doctor who sat above the patient was fundamentally harder for patients to speak up to and tell the truth than the patients who sat at eye level with the doctor or above the doctor. And so something just as minimal as the eye level of the higher power and the lower power status person made a huge different difference in people's comfort speaking up. And if you think about regular organizational environments, we have tons of different examples where you know, the shapes of tables and where the most powerful person sits at the table 
and which kind of, you know, dining rooms or first class versus coach class people sit in. We have so many subtle signals that tell people that person's in more power than me. And what we've learned is that bosses can do all the right things verbally. They can be friendly and open. But if they send off too many of these other power signals, people won't speak up. I guess why a boss needs to show a certain amount of power. A boss needs to go, I am the leader here, but they don't need to impose it. They need to know when to play that card and when not to. I think so. And, you know, I'm quite aware that people have, you know, different points of view on this issue. But I've always believed that most people are smart enough to figure out for themselves and decide whether their boss or any authority figure deserves and has earned the credibility or is only being given sort of basic deference because of a formal position of authority. You know, a simple example would be there's always been some debate in business schools about whether professors should wear, you know, suits and ties to class every day. And, you know, some colleagues will argue that it's important to wear suits and ties because this establishes our credibility and authority with the students. And I've always said, if we have to rely on a suit and a tie to earn credibility from our students, we're sunk (laughs) from the beginning. Um, These are really smart people, and they will decide within about 10 minutes of the first class whether we deserve their respect. And it's not going to have much of anything to do with our tie. That makes sense from what you were talking earlier on about an issue seller understanding the target, essentially, or the buyer. And then mirroring. But this is the other way around where you're actually kind of going, I need to mirror what I want the organization to be. So, you know, it's it's kind of like the law of attraction, if you will, where you're kind of going, I got to put out there what I want to get back. And I got to put out there that I'm open to listening. I'm not putting myself out there as very different with what I wear or, or how I behave. I need to actually draw engagement out of my people. That's right. And I think, you know, it's modeling in a lot of other ways. You know, you you say you want to create this environment where people can really learn. And that involves taking chances and trying different things. And and that, by definition, then will involve you know failure and mistakes. But if if you, the boss, are never willing to try anything different and make a mistake in front of your subordinates, if you're not willing to be vulnerable in any other way, um, if you, you know, say you want, let's say, blue sky thinking, but then model for your people that on these blue sky innovation days, we should still come dressed up and present using PowerPoint slides um, with only a, a specified font and number of words per slide. You know, then your own behavior doesn't in any way create the conditions that suggest you really want openness. When you look at it, the whole thing, Jim, like when you look at both sides of the coin in the the wider environment of business, there's huge disruption coming. But yes, the organization isn't adapting to what's coming. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the evidence in the first revolutions has been that the vast majority of existing organizations didn't manage to adapt and they were just replaced by newer, different, more nimble types of organizations. And I think, you know, we we have lots of reasons to be skeptical that existing organizations are are really going to be prepared and ready for this one, too. 
And part of it, you know, I think is why, again, whether you're teaching people, you know, how to sell and be persuasive or be competently courageous, I, I think part of that is you're talking about sets of skills that hopefully will help create change in your organization. But if not, they're the same skills that would help you take your own skills somewhere else and succeed at convincing other types of people, you know, whether that's a venture capitalist who might fund your idea, you know, or other employers who might be more open. Because sometimes you simply can't. Sometimes you simply can't create change in the environment you're in. Yeah, sometimes the organization is just allergic. And as you said, if the leader truly doesn't want change and is incentivized by, you know, they're on a three-year, they're a three-year kind of steward of a role rather than an actual leader, and then they have a golden parachute, why would they ever change anything? Because it's too much risk. No, that's right. And, you know, for for, for really senior leaders who, who say they want, um, you know, they really want to reward, you know, out of the box, uh, you know, assertive individuals. One simple question for those people to ask themselves is, if I look around, if I look around my own senior management team, the people I have promoted, how many of them did I promote fundamentally because they were great at challenging me and telling me how wrong I usually am? Uh, you know, one of the surest signs, and people all the time point this out to me, they say, you know, my company espouses wanting creative divergent thinking. But the top is a set of yes men and women. And so the concrete evidence is that the people who get promoted are the ones who go along, not the ones who fundamentally rock the boat. And that's the huge challenge, isn't it? From your side, Jim, do you see signals of change for this? Most of the signals of change, again, if you go to sort of how does it happen over the long run, most of the signals of change we see tend to be from or newer tech focused organizations. You know, it's, it's the disruptors, not the disrupted um, that are the most skillful at sort of being adaptive. Yeah. Uh, you know, time and again, we, you know, we hear about the Googles and the Pixars, you know, and the Amazons, you know, it's a, in the U.S., it's a, it's a relatively small number of organizations that you hear about over and over as the examples of having created, you know, the right kinds of environments. As you said, the other revolutions have shown that there's people just replaced. And I think that's the biggest tragedy when you have good people in organizations who know their organization needs to change. The organization rejects them for being chicken littles or too disruptive or too much a maverick. And then they go and join the new organizations. That's right. Or in a sense, even more tragically, you know, what, one of the things we have learned studying the issue of speaking up for several decades is one big barrier to people speaking up is indeed they are afraid. But another big barrier, and in some contexts, a bigger barrier is that people have just concluded it's futile. It's just not worth it. And so you have all these people who had so many great ideas and so much talent. But over a period of time, they've just they've gotten worn down and they've they've stopped trying to think the creative thought. They've stopped trying to really make any change. And 
they really make and do in passing time rather than truly pushing for change anymore. And what a what a colossal waste of human talent that is when people yeah. reach that point. And that lack of meaning, it's so bad for people's mental health and actually eventually physical health as well. Yeah, you know, a couple hundred years ago or 150 years ago, you know, um, in the U.S., uh, Henry David Thoreau, you know, talked about most men leading lives of quiet desperation. And, and sometimes I fear that 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 aptly describes how just too many people feel a few years into their career. They're just stuck. So we don't finish on, on, a, on a, that note because <laughs> you were a change maker. And, you know, it's one of the reasons I reached out to you because I, I think you're doing phenomenal work. What do you see for the future? So say somebody's listening and their kid's going to college or going to college soon. What kind of advice are you giving to people like that? What kind of careers should they seek? What kind of things should they study? Well, I, I still really believe, uh, you know, it's become a little old fashioned in the U.S. anyway to talk about the value of a of a liberal arts education. But I I think in a world of technology and artificial intelligence, I I still really believe that in the future, the skills that we will not replace with technology will be the, the very human abilities to to think critically um, to connect at a very human level, you know, to compel other. It's it's the management of emotions. It's the perspective taking and the ability to frame and, and, you know, adjust in real time to emotional and social and cultural cues. I think that the people who can do that will be the people who will continue to thrive um, no matter how automated uh, the world becomes. And so, you know, for me, it's less about sort of what what people major in or what they study. And it's really that they they focus on learning to be learners and learning to be skilled at those basic emotional and, and cultural skills. And I think the people who do that in combination with one other critical thing, which is, you know, the sort of old wisdom about, you know, save a pot of gold. Um it's it's going to be really critical because ultimately, if we can't change every environment we're in, we need the flexibility to be able to go create new environments or pursue new environments. And so my advice to younger people is not only to sort of learn to be a learner and a thinker, but it's also not to live so close to the edge financially and otherwise that, you know, by 30 years old, they feel they don't have any choice. Yeah. Um, you know, keeping themselves externally valuable and internally credible and have that pot of gold so that you can really pursue your dreams. I think that's, you know, that's the future we should be seeking. Awesome, Jim. Well, you pretty much summed up the uh, ethos of this show as well. So, so thank you for that. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Jim Dietert, expert in selling up and managing up. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.